Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. All right. Joining us now is Dr. Kenneth Green from the American Enterprise Institute. Ken, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So tell us a little bit about your interest in energy. You have a a pretty distinctive background for someone in energy policy. Right. Well, I'm actually trained in environmental science uh, and environmental policy. My doctoral degree was in environmental science and engineering from UCLA. uh, And I went to work straight out of my doctorate for think tanks working on environmental policy. And what I realized almost immediately is that environmental policy and energy policy are about the same thing. They're, they're so integrally intertwined that you really can never, whenever you're talking about major environmental is- issues, you're almost invariably talking about energy-related issues. And over the years, I wound up more and more involved in that angle of things, the energy-related environmental impacts. And when I moved to AEI six years ago, uh, I decided I wanted to really drill down on energy and focus on that subject exclusively. Uh, and I've mostly done that uh, since joining AEI. I've mostly focused on energy policy uh, with some related environmental policy as well. So um, when I visited your office, I don't know when it was, like six months ago or so, you gave me this book, which is yeah. which is really cool, um, called Abundant Energy, the Fuel of Human Flourishing. And the first thing I want to note about it, uh, besides you should go buy it on Amazon, uh, it's pretty cheap, uh, is it's in the Values and Capitalism series, which is interesting because this is a big issue of mine, but a lot of people in energy wouldn't associate themselves with values. It would be more just about pure economics. So why, why have an energy book in the Values and Capitalism series? Well, the Values and Capitalism project is, is an AEI project that uh, does, as Arthur Brooks says, makes the moral case for capitalism in the various areas where AEI scholars work. And uh, they asked me to write a monograph on energy for that series, which was uh, meant to go out to college students. It's a supplemental text, basically, for college students. Uh, And that's why, because I've long come to to believe that the prevailing narratives about energy um, are wrong on their face. The environmental narrative is wrong, and the scarcity narrative is wrong. Uh, And people's understanding of the centrality of energy to their daily life is insufficient. And so... When they asked me to write the book, I'd already written uh, many of the underlying sections as uh, studies and other, ar- other chapters and articles, and I brought them together into a, a sort of a grand synthesis. And it gave me an opportunity to really think through what I felt were the most important issues for people to understand with regard to energy. Yeah, so we'll talk about all three of those narratives. Let's, let's start with the issue um, of just the importance of abundance. One, one point that you make at the outset of the book, which I found rings very true, is that people most often think of energy either when they have a power outage or when their gas or elect- gasoline you know, price goes up or their electric bill goes up. Uh, can you counter that and just explain to the average American how significant energy is in their lives beyond that? Well, sure. I mean, and, and here in America, we're very spoiled because uh, historically we have extremely reliable energy systems, and they're pervasive, and you, they're, they're as much as you want, whatever you want them, uh, although you may or may not want to pay as much as you do for them. So it, we're just accustomed to flipping the switch, light goes on, turning the gas valve, the stove comes on, adjusting the thermostat, the heater, or the air conditioning comes on. 
That's not the case for about 2 billion people around the world who don't actually have any meaningful access to energy. As we think of it, electricity or gas, uh, they have uh, perhaps some access to wood and charcoal, but that's about it. Um, in, in what most people don't realize is that, that you use energy in your life basically 24 hours, seven days a week. So it's not simply when you do the things I just talked about that you use energy. When you consume a bottled water, uh, you're consuming the wave of energy that brought it to you from when it was scooped out of a river somewhere, purified, sanitized, bottled, uh, labeled, stuck on a truck, driven to you, right? Um, you refrigerated it and chilled it even further, perhaps. Uh, and so you're, you're consuming energy with everything you consume. Food is the same way. We're long past the point where we're just gathering up the food that happens to grow in nature uh, and, and eating it. Our agriculture and systems are highly energy intensive. We dump energy onto the ground in order to grow more crops in the form of fertilizer. And then again, all of those same processing steps bring you that food. And so, you know, you eat, you eat, eat energy. You're wearing energy. The clothing we have, again, the, the cotton didn't grow by itself without energy. It wasn't processed and, and, and uh, dyed and treated and woven and shipped to you. You wash it every t time you wear it or every other time you wear it, one hopes. Uh, which basically puts more energy, lavishes more energy on it, not only in the form of the hot water, but the detergents that are made from, from petroleum products uh, and from gas. So your clothing is basically energy. Um, anywhere you can rest your eye around you in a, is, generally speaking, you're looking at congealed energy, that, that energy was infused into the product when it was made, <clears throat> more energy was infused when it was moved to you, and you lavish energy on it all the time when you clean it and when you maintain it and when you keep your air conditioning, your, your, uh, you know, your apartment to air conditioned so that things don't you know, get dry out and get warped. Uh, it, it's, Americans really have little understanding that everything they do and everything they, they consume uh, is basically uh, energy. It's like if you were in the Matrix, you'd see sort of this, right? <clears throat> you'd see this grid of energy that, that underlies everything you look at. That tr that tr that uh, runs back, uh, in some cases, years uh, in manufacturing. And I guess a helpful contrast that you have in the <clears> book is is because it's energy is part of everything in our lives. But part of the point is that, of that is that there are many people without that, and their lives are really really rough. And I think in the book you have a lot of material on on energy poverty. Yes, uh, in large parts of the world, uh, people are desperately uh, energy poor. They have virtually no access to energy, and what they do have access to is a low quality energy it's it's not very dense it's wood and biomass uh charcoal perhaps um uncontrolled sources that where uh, pollution where they're cooking over a charcoal fire fire in a in a unventilated hut uh is a recipe for lung disease and uh, cancer and and um a very large part of the world almost two billion people are in that kind of energy poverty so it's, it's a it's a moral crisis really well, yeah, and you raise in the book that it's that it's a moral crisis, and I guess I think of that from two perspectives. One is that I mean, it's completely immoral that environmentalists hold back energy development mm -hmm. in those countries, and that they curse yes. the energy only energy sources that would work, like you know LPG for a stove or something like that. Yes. Um, but I'm curious. One issue that comes up when I think of that is there's also just a lot of institutional problems that present prevent any kind of economic growth, and including energy growth from coming up in these countries. So, what do you think is a good way to advocate both of those kinds of changes at the same time? 
Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very good point, and it's a tough question. And I talk about that also in the book later on with regard to the environmental transitions that developed countries go through. Um, you need the right institutions for people to be able to express their amenity, their values for energy and their values for environmental protection and ba to balance those two things out. And a lot of developing countries uh, don't have those kind of institutions. Um, you know, it, it, since I guess uh, since the, the Obama administration's onset, we have not really been, the United States hasn't really been in the business of promoting democratic capitalism anymore. That sort of got tarnished a little bit. But really, you, you do have to sort of um, promote market institutions uh, in these countries if you're going to build the kind of energy infrastructure you need to service those two billion people. You, a lot of the problems are that uh, in much of the world, uh, you, most, of, most of the petroleum, uh, for example, is controlled by state government uh, energy companies. It's not private sector, it's, it's states. And states are notoriously inefficient uh, and don't distribute things particularly efficiently or well. And they tend to, you know, many, in many cases in the developing world, they're corrupt, uh, they're not uh, democratic, they're not uh, transparent, they don't have the rule of law or property rights. So you, you do have to promote the full suite, I guess, of institutions that lead to the developed world we have, the situation we have in, in the, the developed world of having abundant supplies of energy that people can afford and that's reliable enough for people to count on and, and, and live their lives knowing that the power is unlikely to go out except in emergencies. Yeah, it just struck me as you said that about um, with the transition between the Bush and the Obama administration in terms of what you might call advocating American ideals abroad, which I certainly don't agree with the way the Bush administration did it. Uh, but, I mean, it's certainly an, it's a really odd hypocrisy that the only thing environmentalists want to advocate abroad in terms of, quote, cultural imperialism is environmentalism. So we should right. force environmentalism on these people give them no energy but nothing else but yeah. no cat nothing that could actually allow them to to produce energy in our, themselves so right. to whatever extent they can on their own we tell them not to do it and then we take away the freedom that could allow them to do it on their own right and and that's the failure i mean that's the, that's the other narrative that was uh, that is a wrong narrative the environmental view is that development and energy consumption <clears throat> are inherently degrading to the environment and it's been well documented that the problems, environmental problems tend to stem from a lack of defined property rights and a lack of enfranchisement. People either can't control their property and can't go to seek redress through the government for the protection of their property, including the property in themselves and their health and their lungs. And as you, you're right, environmentalists have one set of values, which is don't impact the environment. Um, they really... Uh, care very much less about anything involving humans. They're they're environmentalistic, and uh, you know, I'm anthropocentric. I believe people are at the center of what we should be doing. Uh, but you're right; what they're doing is unconscionable. Trying to block uh, everything from dams to regular gas power plants to liquid natural gas or kerosene stoves uh, in favor of giving really highly intermittent and poor levels of energy. So they'll they'll give you one little solar panel to power a light bulb, to charge a battery and power a light bulb in the evening. That's about and, and charge your cell phone, and that's the level of energy they're willing to allow those people to have, the developing countries to have. And it's 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 unconscionable, really. Yeah, and they'll brag about it. Yes, they'll, they'll brag about having stopped coal plants and stopped dams and ta having, having them taken down and destroyed. Um, uh, they, they are, they're not shy about saying that you know, they don't want the developing world to develop, and they want the developed world to de-develop. 
Yeah, and that you've brought up a couple of times the issue of, of energy and environment. When I read the book, I found myself agreeing with you 75% of the time, but then agreeing with all the, I mean, you have all these fantastic facts about really how energy improves the human environment. Um, and yet I, I wrote down this sentence just because I didn't want to misquote. Let's see, where is it? Um, you say, you know, most people know that energy production causes significant environmental damage. Um, and then energy is clearly not environmentally benign. Now, you certainly go on to say, I mean, you talk about the Kuznets curve, which we'll talk about. Um, but it, I, you go on to say other positive things, but it seems like, especially once you have property rights, it's not just, it's not fundamentally damaging. I mean, there might be some damage associated with it, like there is with anything, but the net is so positive. And if that's why the undeveloped world is environmentally horrible and we're environmentally great by comparison. Well, yeah. And again, you have to look at it from the perspective of um, what's your framework of analysis, right? So if you are just looking at environmental damage, what you see is <clears throat> coal mining, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, causes significant uh, environmental damage. When you dam a river and you flood an area to make a reservoir, uh, you are causing significant uh, environmental damage. Um, if all you're caring about is the environment and fish and, and plants and things like that, you're going to see energy as a negative if, as a negative thing. Energy production, in general, you're going to see it as a negative thing. If you have humans in your equation, if what you're looking at is the total, total environment, which includes the human-built environment and everything else, it's a wildly net positive for the human experience, for the, for the human life. I mean, we would not have the life expectancy we have and the medical treatments we have and the sanitized uh, and preserved foods we have. We would not have any of these things had we st stuck with the the diffuse forms of energy we get only from on a, on a daily basis from the wind and the sun, which of course we were stuck with for many, many millions of years. Um, we, we just would not have the kind of development that wouldn't have happened without concentrated forms of energy, which build up over those same millions of years. Nature gives them to us in the form of coal, natural gas, uh, petroleum, and the inher inherently powerful um, radioactive elements. So in terms of how we think about environment, it seems like it could be dangerous to concede like environment to this idea of kind of untouched wilderness, you know, environment apart from humans. Why not? You said, I mean, we're both anthropocentric. So why not focus on the human environment, uh, you know, versus wilderness where, mm -hmm. of course, they're interconnected and you have to know. I mean, you're a scientist. You know about these relationships. You need to pay attention to them. But it's it's all it's all for the sake of the human environment. It's not that there's any scenario that I can think of in which I would think, no, we should, you know, there's 5,000 squirrels and that matters more than one human. Right. right. I mean, and this, this is a matter of value systems. I'm anthropocentric. I, I think of myself sort of as a, a conservationist, but in the old sense, as Gifford Pinchot, uh, one of the first conservationists said with uh, Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt's administration, you know, you can serve so that people can use more and have use it for longer. It's, it's a, you know, save the whales. We may want to eat them someday. Uh, it's not because I think there's an innate value in preserving a particular tree or a bush or whatever. There are things called ecosystem services where we do get services from the environment. And if I were to casually wipe out a stand of trees that is a windbreak between my land and my, my neighbor's land, uh, such that the wind then starts eroding their soil, causing soil erosion, and right sh shifts soil into their into their stream, and spoils their stream, and all that. Um, I would be held responsible uh, for the. I should be held responsible, even if it's on my own land, for depriving them of what were previously ecosystem services. But again, that's not because there's an innate value in the trees. There's not an innate value in the squirrels that would trump a human life. Uh, 
but what you could say is, if you wiped out the 5,000 squirrels, you have to ask yourself the question. If I do, do this thing and I flood this valley to build a dam and I wipe out the 5,000 squirrels, um, is that somehow, is the effect of wiping out that particular ecosystem going to be so big it hurts other people? Uh, and if so, how do I remediate that? Or is it going to actually cause, you know, a cascade? You, could, you can imagine, biologically, you can imagine cascade problems where if you wipe out all the top-level predators, right, in an area, you're going to have a huge upsurge in prey species like deer, I mean, which we have problems with in a lot of cities, where you have an upsurge in deer populations, and then people hit them in cars. Right, and you have uh, human mortality as well, and so there are, there are considerations to be made in ba in how you manage environmental systems. But I agree with you. Generally speaking, my views are you manage the environment to in, in maximize the human experience, the human uh, for human values and human opportunity. You don't um, manage humans to maximize environmental wilderness. Yeah, and I think I think. I think the broader issues of how an ecosystem works are really fascinating. They just need to be looked at scientifically and not from an anti-human, anti-science perspective, which is what most of the ecologists do. So I'm curious, because uh, you have a lot of background in this, how do you give the government the right role in terms of really protecting rights with these kinds of things? It's, it's this huge mandate that the government mm -hmm. is basically owner of, quote, the environment and whenever it, or the ecosystem. And whenever anyone posits that something could hurt some ecosystem, it just has this fascist control to shut down whatever it wants. So how, do you, how do you have a more objective system? Well, that's, you put your finger on a really good, good uh, really big problem, which is uh, through the life sciences in general, of course— you have to, one has to start at the beginning, right? In academia, in general, people lean, hard, lean to the left, significantly to the left. Uh, therefore, they're indoctrinated with an aversion to solutions involving property rights, pricing, and things like that in favor of if something, is, if, if something I don't like, I want to regulate it. That's the default mindset, pretty much, of, of people in the liberal arts and, and I think in the life sciences. Uh, in my experience, at least, certainly it, it, in my, my education, that was the basic mindset of the biologists and the people uh, that I studied with. Uh, and, of course, the ones who self-select to go into agencies are, by their nature, regular, uh, command and control kind of regulation-focused people, um, prone to believing the worst things that come out of their models. And that's, that's where you, we, we have the problem, which is somebody comes forward and posits an environmental, pro environmental problem. And um, you know, it's not analyzed objectively. It's not dealt with in the way, for example, a jury would weigh evidence in deciding that uh, Ken hurt Bob. It, it's done through models and through estimates that just take the worst-case scenarios and build worst-case scenarios on worst-case scenarios until you get to the point where you're, you're vastly either over-regulating uh, or you've made the, the cost of what you're doing is vastly exceeds the benefits of what you're doing, which is where we are now. Uh, with a large raft, I think, of environmental regulation, the costs are significantly higher than the benefits we get as a society. I mean, t to what extent can all of this be put in uh, property rights terminology and laws where you're not, you're not thinking of cost-benefit you know, to a society as a whole, but you're thinking of, of are you doing some objective harm to this individual who's innocent? Well, I mean... There are groups um, that, that look into this. There's a book called Free Market Environmentalism, which probably should be required reading of people uh, who are either libertarian or, or right-leaning, uh, who have high environmental values. Um, you know, in many cases, this can be managed through property rights. The problem is, as you pointed out, uh, 
Uh, and in fact, in the early days of, of the United States, these things were being handled through property rights and through tort laws where somebody would foul somebody else's stream or pollute their land or build a factory upwind and pollute their, their house. Uh, there, there were uh, court cases that were starting to decide these issues, but the government basically usurped the right to handle these issues. And so, of course, the federal government and their multiple jurisdictions, since the federal government controls all the major waterways, but states have t historically controlled their mineral rights and, the, and mining rights and things like that. Uh, so it's, it's, while it can be done in theory, right now it's hard to think of anything other than sort of a surrogate process. So where if you were to have regulatory reform, I would try to say, look, you have to do this as, as if you're emulating a court process, a legal process with a jury and the kind of objectivity and evidence, evidentiary standards necessary. I don't think you can go back to, I don't think we're ever going to go back to having the courts really decide it, but you might be able to reform an agency until it got to the point where it said, look, we're using the sort of evidentiary standards of harm that you would use in court. And if you cannot prove, if you cannot prove beyond a, a you know, reasonable doubt that what this activity is doing is hurting someone else, then you can't enjoin it or you can't really regulate it. Um, we could hopefully move in that direction. Well, it would require rewriting a massive trench of, of regulation and somehow changing the culture of massive agencies, which have been pretty intractable in their, in the, their nature of their, their uh, agency culture. Oh, I, I totally forgot my next question because I was just going to say that it, um, yeah, well, you know, a never is a long time. So <laughs> hopefully, hopefully at some point, you know, we have a culture well, yeah. of property well, rights. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ambivalent about that because I tend to be of the belief that people don't really change until there's an absolute disaster, right? That until things really, really break, uh, people aren't likely to change. And so while I'm hopeful we'd have change, I would not like to think about the breakdown that has to happen first. Oh, okay. If, I, I think the opposite. I think people don't change that much even when there's a disaster. I think they, they just die change. And get they, they die, die and, get and their ideas change over time. Other mm. people change. Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, if you look at California, for example, um, they're only now beginning to embrace some highway pricing simply because they just can't afford, actually, to maintain their roadways anymore. Um, <laughs> if they had instituted the pricing in when they built the darn things, they, A, would never have had the congestion problems or pollution problems associated with congestion and the degradation of the infrastructure uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. But they always wait till the very last minute until it's basically a fiscal crisis to do anything that seems to be market-related. But, of course, that's California. So. Well, I happen to be there, and thank God I, for the 73 yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, just going one more, one back once more to the issue of property rights and how it used to be enforced. And there's a lot of interesting literature, but I'm curious in your estimation, has that how much has that literature evolved in the sense that it would, in comparison to what it would if you had kept it? Because, of course, so many developments have happened scientifically and technologically, and environmentally that the law would property rights would need to take into account and that the case law would need to take into account and the common law would need to, has that just all been lost or is, are there people who have worked it out to some significant degree? Um, well, you know, the, the fact that we don't have much in the way of legal, and we, we, and we do have high profile environmental court cases. You can take in agencies to court and you can take other people to court. And we, so we still do have some of that uh, settlement. It's mostly a matter of, of private entities suing the government uh, and vice versa rather than private entities suing each other uh, to, to solve um, environmental problems. You know, I, I think because the government is, 
90% of the environmental regulation we have, and with 10% being a matter of, of, of law, naturally it becomes just a matter of sort of historic academic interest. And I think the land's been plowed, as it were, uh, intellectually, but I don't, I'm sure we would have much more focus on it if we were solving more of our, our environmental conflicts through um, a sort of tort law and precedent in courts. The other thing about that is it would be, a, in many ways, it would be a better system because the courts, and I think about the courts and laws, it's a living thing, really, and it evolves more. And if you look at the Clean Air Act, uh, it has not evolved to keep up with the current levels of pollution. It was designed for vastly higher, much more crude levels of pollution and easier pollution control. And yet we've knocked the pollution levels down so far. We're now chasing really... Um, diminishing returns on investment, ever, ever more difficult and costly reductions. Uh, but the Clean Air Act is basically carved in stone, and it's, it's, uh, anyone who even ponders amending the Clean Air Act is accused of being basically a, you know, a child killer, a baby killer, and, and um, gutting the Clean Air Act. You can't make a single change without the environmentalist saying that you're gutting uh, the Clean Air Act. And so it, it has us chasing our tail or, or in, a, in a sort of iterative navel-gazing mode um, and and it, it it can't evolve in the way that court precedent can evolve. Well, it's quote evolved to cover CO two, right? Yes. Well, the, yes. The uh, those clever people at the EPA found a section of the Clean Air Act in which Congress um, uh, gave them the authority to regulate uh, greenhouse gases from automobiles, uh, and under the um, under cover of that. They've also uh, deemed themselves to have the authority to regulate greenhouse gases on stationary sources as well, um, because once it's in, the, it's you know, if it's, if it's a pollutant in the act, it's a pollutant in the act, and uh, courts have basically upheld that, uh, have upheld that judgment. So now they're beginning to assert uh, greenhouse controls over the greenhouse gases as well as the conventional pollutants like ozone and particulate matter. So. Just for the uninitiated, what do you think are the worst aspects of our environmental law vis-a-vis energy? Well, I, th- I think the worst aspects, first of all, we've actually been very fortunate in that um, we have so much private, private land in the United States and state-controlled lands, and states have historically controlled the mineral rights and the, the leasing rights to those properties, um, that the federal government hasn't been able to do that much in energy policy. They're, they're constantly bemoaning that we don't have a national energy policy. We don't have, have a national energy policy. And my answer is, you don't want a national energy policy. We don't have a national tennis shoe policy. We don't have a national smartphone policy. We don't have a national dental, dental floss policy. What You don't need a national energy policy. All that is is central planning. The Soviets had, had a great national energy policy, right? They had five-year plans and everything worked perfectly, as we all know, once the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, but uh, so we've been lucky so far, and right now the environmentalists, of course, are in a panic because the shale gas and shale oil boom that we're experiencing in the, in the United States are bringing down electricity prices, letting people do more stuff that they disapprove of, and it's being done on private uh, lands and, and lands under state control. And so the federal government is looking now for an excuse to get in, uh, and that's in, ter- in the form of fracking regulations. The pressure is for the federal government to add another layer of regulation where you'd have to get approvals from EPA uh, or from the federal government 
to do hydraulic fracturing for uh, shale gas and, and uh, oil, even on state and private lands, and um, and on federal lands as well, which of course you already do. And that the risk there is that that slows the process down uh, and bids up the prices again for natural gas, um, making people's electricity more expensive, and also perversely enough, leading to more use of coal, which is what's happening in. Uh, in some parts of Europe, uh, where they instituted carbon controls, greenhouse gas controls, through a cap-and-trade system, but the value of the permits are so low that it's actually just cheaper to burn coal still, so they're burning more coal than they are natural gas. Than, than, uh, natural gas. All right. Well, since we brought up uh, carbon controls, we might as well get this out of the way. Someone asked me on Facebook that I had to ask this, and I wanted to ask it anyway. Uh, AEI had a prominent event, I think, last week or the week before. I don't know if it was pr intended to be prominent, but it was prominent in the free market blogosphere. Um, and I heard, I don't know if this is true, so you'll clarify it, but I heard it was the fifth such event um, just talking about the possibility of a carbon tax and the either virtues or vices or both uh, of that. So can you tell us the inside scoop on that? I'm sure. The, 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 it was really a, a, something of a tempest in a teapot. It was blown out of proportions uh, in a sense. You know, economists... Are economists. They they think about things economically, and um, uh, in this case, one of our economists, Kevin Hassett, was invited to participate with this group to think about a carbon tax. And he's worked on carbon tax ideas since I think 1995, something like that. Um, and uh, they had a meeting. Uh, they they just didn't have a meeting space that was suitable for the size of the group. And he offered to host them at AEI and let them use a conference room. Um, but he didn't have control of the agenda or anything else. And two of the guys drafted up some agenda that was uh, much too political-looking uh, and was, was, in fact, too political. And um, somebody released it and made, a, uh, made a, big, a big deal out of it as if there was some giant cabal or conspiracy or something like that. When I'm on record. I've written many, many times um, why we don't want a carbon tax and what's wrong with a carbon tax. Um, but... Uh, you know, it, it, it serves the narrative of some free market groups to try to do this. They, they, um, AEI has a, a, a culture of, of academic freedom, so I can work on whatever I want to. And, I, and if, if somebody else at AEI says something I don't agree with, I can slap them about uh, the head and shoulders, you know, verbally at least, uh, in public. And that's just the nature of our culture. But a lot of some other uh, right of center groups... Uh, are much more narrow and don't really t tolerate much diversity of thought. And they saw an opportunity to try to impose their kind of thought control over us and made a big deal out of something that really was relatively trivial. Well, okay. So I, I heard that, that, there, that this was the fifth such meeting like this. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I actually have not been involved in that, the process at all. Uh, I haven't been to any of these meetings. I didn't even know this one was planned. Um, and I, I'm not sure if it was the fifth or not. I mean, um, I gather that that the same people, the meetings are not the same groups of people. Hmm. So I, I really, but I, I really know very not, little or nothing about the actual details. No, I mean, I, it's, it's, I, I've learned this over time that institutions are very, very different in their cultures and their, their mandates. And I, I mean, I happen to run, I don't know what you would call it, a narrow, you know, it's, I mean, the people I work with have a, I mean, there's a lot of diversity of views, but certainly, I mean, no one in favor of carbon tax is going to write my blog. I mean, that's, you know, as I'm entitled to have that kind of organization. Um, yeah, and absolutely. others are too. So that, but I guess what I just wanted to talk about the idea of a carbon tax and under, cause I can't quite understand why Kevin Hassett or others would be interested in it, given the reasons that you wrote in the blog that followed it, particularly that this is the issue. 
there's no conceivable carbon tax that would actually do anything on their own terms in terms of significantly reducing global greenhouse emissions. So my question is, so you would have to jack it up to some incredibly catastrophic level for everyone in the world and impose it dictatorially through the UN. That's the only way you could do it. Obviously, they don't want to do that. So it's just going to be a senseless tax on a bunch of Americans. So why do people think that this is, why is this a good thing to think about? Um, again, I, I don't know. I tend to, to, as I said, I tend to I view the carbon tax negatively. You're, you're absolutely right in the sense that uh, you, you get no environmental benefit from a carbon tax uh, because, especially a unilateral one in the United States, uh, and unless it's a very high carbon tax, you don't see significant reductions. And if you do, you're basically forcing people into a much lower quality of life, much uh, less uh, empowered, literally less empowered uh, quality of life uh, because it's virtually, it's very, very difficult to reduce greenhouse gas emissions without just reducing energy use. So really what you're doing is putting a tax on energy use. Now, why do they, uh, why do they consider it? Well, economists are, you know, tend to think about things like um, economic efficiency. And so if you view carbon tax or if you, if you, if you view an energy tax as a surrogate for a consumption tax, and you have the opportunity to take the revenues from a consumption tax and cut back on a productivity tax, a production ta tax, which is like the, the income tax, payroll tax, uh, corporate tax, etc. Um, they view that as a, post a potential gain of economic efficiency. That is, you gain more by uh, giving people the fruits of their productivity than you lose by imposing a small tax on their consumption. And Again, that's purely an academic theoretical, as I wrote in that blog post. You know, that, that's the basic academic egghead theoretical view that doesn't take into account uh, the realities of what happens uh, when you give uh, a constantly revenue-starved government um, uh, the access to a tax on the fundamental input to everything you do. Um, it just just strikes me as being uh, you know it's, it's it's naive and foolish but but you know they they're, they're thinking in terms simply of of uh, my economic model says that if I bring up tax A and I bring down tax B that I have an increased efficiency in my overall economy and therefore the benefits are more than the costs and um, you know it's it's something I don't understand either and I've discussed this many times with with economist colleagues. Um, but, you know, they're economists and they think economically. Well, yeah, that's charitable to, to call that thinking economically. So I, what I get, what, I, what helped me about your article was you explained that, they, that they're saying that a, all other things being equal, a tax is more efficient than cap and trade, which is more efficient than, you know, government control. Right. Which is right. true. That is true. But, but the whole thing is a destructive thing. So you're comparing three forms of destruction that yield absolutely no benefit. So if you're an economist, you need to factor that into the model that you're destroying energy and that you're getting nothing. I, I would think so. In fact, as I wrote, uh, or when I think about it, um, you know, uh, most of the discussion over carbon tax took place in the context of this is better than that, which is better than the other thing. But they really were, yeah, one, one has to always and every time point out that as you're saying, these are, it's a less destruction versus a bigger destruction versus total destruction. Uh, and therefore, it's only favored in the sense that, you know, if I must be shot, I'd rather be shot in the forearm than shot in the thigh, uh, than shot in the head. But I'd really, I'd rather not be shot, really. And I don't see any benefit in it. So, uh, 
you know, I, I think, and I think they do. To be to be honest, I think they get that. Um, it's just that they they assume that as a subtext of of that the conversation. They simply assume you know that they're against taxes, uh, you know, they're against increasing taxes because they're conservative, and therefore they're talking about mitigating harms of of something. If we're going to wind up in a regulated environment, how do we mitigate the harm done? by these regulations. And I, I think that's the context they think about this in, but they don't always say it. They don't always make it clear. And sometimes it comes across sounding as if they actually are, you know, for the idea. That they think it would be a net good. Well, I think, I think most of them understand it's not, it, it's not a net good. And, and to a certain extent, something that they can get away with some horse trading and convince liberals and environmentalists to back off on regulation and things if they give them, uh, this, uh, if they, they give them a carbon tax. Uh, which I think is is uh, it's not only beyond naive; it's it's uh, it's a babe in the woods kind of uh, kind of innocence that that because they're not going to compromise. The environmentalists want uh, all of the above; they want cap and trade and regulations and a carbon tax and the and efficiency standards for cars and efficiency standards for your refrigerator and a smart grid that would let them turn down your hot water heater. I mean, they want all of they want all the control over the energy uh, system they can possibly achieve. And they're not going to be satisfied with a price mechanism that they don't have intimate control over what size television you're allowed to have and what label has to go on the box regarding its energy use. Yeah, and, and speaking of those liberals and environmentalists, I think when they talk about a carbon tax, part of what they're trying to get away with, and this speaks to one of my favorite parts of your book, is the idea that it's just a fairly minor difference between hydrocarbons um, and solar in intermittent sources like solar and wind. Just maybe if you just added fifty cents to the price or a dollar to the price per gallon of gasoline, then somehow solar power would be. I don't know how it's going to be driving our cars, but by some sort of magic. And could you speak to the issue of reliability, which is a big focus of the book, and how that damages solar and wind in terms of their effectiveness? Well, right. Um, you know, there, there are several things involved here. First is. The environmentalists pretend or assume uh, that renewables, wind and solar power, uh, have features that they don't. So they assume that their cost will come down over time um, because invoking a standard, standard cost curves for manufactured goods. But that doesn't take into account the fact that they use large quantities of rare elements. And when you use large amounts of rare things, costs go up. They don't come down. If you use more and more of the, the rare earth elements used in the magnets and the generators and the circuitry, you're going to have increased or constant costs. You only get cost reductions if it's a matter of learning how to manufacture things more efficiently. When your primary driver is the cost of the thing itself, you don't see those kind of cost reductions. Uh, another thing they presume is that this can be scaled up in a meaningful way and that people will tolerate the consumption of tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of acres of land to be dotted with giant wind turbines and solar cells, um, which the public has not shown any dis disposition to do. They'll accept some of these things, but not a lot. Uh, and, of course, if you, if you, even if you're managing to develop the best sites first, you're going to get diminishing returns on your investment because each one that has, in a less, if you build in the windiest places first, the next installation is going to be in a less windy place. Therefore, you'll get less power out of it. And the same with your solar uh, areas. Because, you know, they, they like to talk about sunlight as being infinite and wind as being an infinite uh, resource. But just like oil, you know, there are some places where there's more of it and some places where there's less of it. Now, 
on that question of reliability, this is where it comes in, which is because the wind, uh, you know, you can, you can control your output for your coal power plant, right? You can control the output for your gas power plant and your nuclear plant. You get on a keyboard, you, you, you put in some, um, some adjustments to the speed of the, ter- of the generators and how much fuel you're using. Largely speaking, these are controlled sources that are highly reliable, unless you have a giant storm, as we did here in the D.C. area, that takes out a, a zillion generators, which you never expected. But um, you can't control the wind, and you can't control the sun. And in fact, they tend to, the wind at least blows mostly when you don't need the energy at night, uh, and uh, the sun is often unreliable when you need it the most during the, during the heat of the day in the afternoon, or the wintertime when it's really, really cold. Um, so what has to happen is if you, for every, every megawatt of wind or solar power you have in your system, you have to have on-demand backup power to replace it in order to maintain the stability of the power strength in your electrical grid. So clouds come overhead, blot out your solar. You have a storm. It blots out your solar uh, power installation. You have to immediately kick in a natural gas or coal-fired plant in order to make up for it. And you can do that when you have a small percentage of your power based on wind or solar power. You can handle that. But as you start getting toward 4, 5, 6, 8%, what you wind up trying to do is juggle so many, for, uh, so many different uh, power surges that the, your stability becomes such that you, you start dancing around blackouts uh, and brownouts and shortages in your, in your electrical system, and you impair the, the stability of the grid. Now... Uh, the environmentalists propose solving that by giving you giving them even more power over your life. So they want their smart grid, which would bring power from point A to point B and so forth. Uh, but again, all of these things distort energy markets for one thing, and simply assert more and more control over your life. So basically, what they want is when your power plant goes out, when your solar power plant goes out, you're just not supposed to use any energy. Yeah, it's it's this. The whole smart grid is this sort of duplicitous blend of this allegedly amazing energy networking technology where you have this wind in the Midwest restoring power to you in D.C. when it goes out. Somehow right. there's no transmission loss in that whole uh, equation <laughs> with the very real phenomenon of them turning on, turning down our thermostats or up our thermostats in California, which is really what the smart grid is about. Right. Well, and, and if, of course, they don't talk about the fact that, that if you want to build this giant smart grid to move transmission from, from uh, West Texas to D.C., um, you're talking about thousands of miles of high tension lines across lands that they probably won't give you permission to make in the first place. And so this is something environmentalists do all the time, which is they, they propose a solution that they really intend to oppose. Right? So they know, they know that when, when it comes to on-the-ground fights, the, when they say we can replace 30% of our energy with wind, they know they're never going to let you get there because the local fights are going to stop it between nimbyism and environmentalism. They know you're not going to get there. That's what they want because what they really want is to f- force you to cut back, say, 20 or 50 or 180% on the energy you use entirely um, uh, and, and live in a, in a much more primitive uh, manner. So they, propose, they tend to propose red herrings, knowing that they actually aren't going to give them to you, unless they are things like you said, um, uh, power grabs, which they, which they will do to turn your thermostat down and uh, you know, pull, the, pull the power back out of your, your plug-in hybrid car uh, in the afternoon if they need it for more air conditioning use. 
and things like that um, without compensating you, of course. You'll pay, to download, you'll pay for the power to charge the, the car. They're not likely to pay you the same rate to draw the power out of your car, right, to power, to power air conditioning. It's, it's a way of them raising both revenue and control. And those things you can count on uh, with great predictability, getting through governments uh, and into, the, into, into um, reality. Yeah, that's a really interesting, interesting phenomenon I want to ask more about because you have this general anti-development mentality where they regard wilderness as sacrosanct and any kind of human transformation as, as bad. And yet many of them seem to convince themselves that the... So they're, primarily they're just opposed to whatever exists and whatever is transforming nature. But they imagine that, oh, this other transformation of nature in the future will be in favor of. So it used to be they're in favor of nuclear and then they're in favor of solar until it's in the Mojave Desert or mm -hmm. until it's noticeable, or until it turns out that it has toxic elements. And the same thing with wind. And how, on the part of the, the leading intellectuals, how honest or disingenuous are they being about knowing that they will actually oppose stuff? And I, did you bring up the fusion example in the book? I think you did, where they, there's yeah. this hypothetical of we can have the cheapest, cleanest energy ever, and they said it's like giving an idiot child a machine gun. Yeah, at one point when uh, when uh, we thought we were on the brink of cold fusion, uh, about 20 years ago now, I think it is, uh, that was the environmentalist's perspective, which is free energy uh, for people would be uh, utterly destructive of the environment. It would be the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. Because, you know, if, if you can generate power for your house with something the size of a coffee cup, then you don't have to live on the grid and you can just basically plunk your house down in the middle of a national park and, right, you'll, and everybody's going to immediately spread out so they're as far apart as possible and ravage the entire world with roads uh, and nuclear-powered cars. And, you know, it, it's um, – how sincere do I think they are? I, I, as I said, I mean, you, you, one hates to impose uh, or impart judgments of other people's sincerity. But – they know from precedent, right? They know from experience that the local environmental groups that are part of their coalition are going to oppose the things in their proximity, right? They have to know that. For them not to know that would basically be for them to be completely blind. They have to know Audubon's going to object to wind turbines in migratory bird corridors. They, they know that, right? They have to know that uh, river keepers are going to object to low-power um, low hydro in, in, in rivers, which they propose sometimes as a solution. They know that um, wildlife uh, groups are going to oppose the lopping, uh, lopping off the tops of cactus in the Mojave Desert for solar panels. And the ones who want to pr pr save the kangaroo rat and the d desert tortoise, they know that at the local level, every single installation is going to be challenged uh, on environmental grounds, and so I have to I have to assume that they're insincere uh, and that they they are intentionally pushing a technology that they know will not be deployed at the scale that they claim it will be deployed at, and that means forced conservation, forced rationing. The example I think of in this connection is Al Gore when he gave that that speech in two thousand eight where he said we should get off all fossil fuels in ten years, uh, which fortunately was not implemented or has not been implemented yet. We'll see what the second Obama administration tries to do um but he he advocated prominently geothermal which just seems like such a joke that al gore would actually public that in reality al gore would be in favor of this massive drilling of these incredibly deep holes all around the earth mm. well yeah i mean and it, 
the other reason it's insincere is that if you look at where most of the geothermal resources are, they're uh, already natural parks. The national parks, they're, they're protected lands. And so uh, we're not going to install a geothermal plant in Yellowstone, right? You had to know that. Um, and the number of places where you can actually get the energy, this is the problem with the natural resources, is that they're clumpy. Uh, things like geothermal, it's available in some parts of the, of the place. But, you know, most people don't like to live over bubbling fumaroles and near volcanoes and things like that. So you, we're back to the transmission thing. Do you move the power hundreds of thousands of miles to a population center, uh, and will they let you? So examples are in California, for instance, they wanted to build uh, some so they wanted to build solar farms in the Mojave or in the desert in the inland valleys of California and move the power out to the cities. The problem is between the inland valleys and the, the major cities are lots of state parks and, and natural uh, resources that nobody wants to run power lines through. And so they're being blocked, balked because nobody's going to run power lines through the Anza Borrego uh, National Forest and uh, in, in, uh, down toward uh, Southern California, Anza Borrego National Park. Um, you know, nobody's going to do that. And so, they're, they're, again, it's a matter of insincerity. They know that they're not going to let you have the power, that, that the end game is for them to say, well, what you have to do is conserve. Unplug all of your devices. Don't let anything have a basic power drain when it's not in use. Keep your lights off, all fluorescent bulbs, Right, etc. Low power, low power washing machines. Dry your clothes on a line, etc., etc., etc. That's what they really want. Uh, but they know if they simply came out and told people that, people would reject their agenda. If they said, "Look, we want you to go back to the 1940s when, if it's, you don't have air conditioning, even if it's hotter than than heck, uh, you have minimal heating. You can just, you know, you can only heat the rooms of the house you're in. You don't have central air and heat. You have room heating and room. Uh, if you have room air conditioning at all, you have air conditioning. All you have room air conditioning." Uh, you dry your clothes on a line, right? Um, the, the people would just reject the agenda. And um, so instead they say, well, we're, they, they pretend they're going to give you replacement power, but that's clean and green replacement power, um, but they really aren't going to do that either. They're going to, they, their goal is the, uh, the, what I call the energy strangle. They want, to, they want to create the conditions that will ultimately lead uh, them to be able to say, the answer is you have to conserve by doing by cutting back, and and they're 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 succeeding. I mean, we're uh, in many cases they're they're stifling the they're stifling the building of of power plants. Now they're they're just right now they're they're losing because of the shale gas revolution. But uh, that is their overall agenda uh, is one of getting you to to cut back. Really quick, that's fascinates me to call it a strangle that, that they're setting up conditions can you just elaborate on that for a second sure well the, the condition so, so instead of building more conventional power plants right mm -hmm. you build more unreliable forms which you know are going to underperform and lead to less power on net available in the grid then you impose pollution controls that make it very difficult for you to run the backup power um cost-effectively, and so you raise the prices, which forces people to pay more and therefore creates a pressure for them to use less. So in many different ways, besides trying to jack up the price of power to get people to use less, to um, impose regulations that kill coal power plants in the United States and move you over, well, would theoretically move you over to natural gas, but they fight those too. There, now there's a, Sierra Club has declared a war on gas, right? Natural gas used to be clean-burning natural gas. That was practically its brand. The environmental group said, 
all of the city fleets and buses need to run on natural gas, right? This, this, it's worth spending an extra, extra hundred thousand dollars for a, for a bus that runs on natural gas. Now all of a sudden we have a war on natural gas, um, which shows you the ongoing insincerity uh, of the movement. You know, we have we've had a war on nuclear power for thirty, forty years. Nuclear power, of course, puts out virtually no emissions at all. At all, if they really were environmentally valued, they'd have been saying, "Hey." You know, France gets like 80% of its power from nuclear energy. Why don't we do that? And then we won't have these emissions. But that's really not their agenda. So to conclude, what is your recommendation for our listeners in terms of what they can do to promote energy and what they can do in the face of these anti-development types who pose as uh, defenders of our environment? Well, I think, I think you have to emphasize the human uh, element and the, and the, the human angle um, and to energy, the way it empowers people's lives uh, and, and help people understand that, which is, you know, the, the reason you have the leisure time to go to college is because we're a society based on huge abundant flows of energy that, do, that, are, that are relatively affordable. The reason you can go to worship on the weekend is because you're not spending every single day in drudgery hauling wood for fires and water for, from a stream and washing your clothes by hand uh, and you know, doing, doing the kind of manual labor that energy-poor societies have to do. Um, the reason that you can um, get health care that you, that you need, which is a, a very energy-intensive business, is because we have uh, always had flows of abundant, affordable, and reliable energy. And any movement away from types of energy that are affordable and reliable and abundant um, take us backward as a society and even as a civilization to a much more primitive uh, form of life. So I think what, what, what people need to do is get out to the hearings on when people, on the NIMB, when somebody's, you know, a NIMBY hearing against a, a solar plant and, you know, confront them and say, look, if you're not going to go with the sun, you have to go with gas or something else. What are you going to allow? Uh, and make the case over and over again that energy is is a vital good for our for our society and civilization, uh, and that we should not be moving away from the cheap, reliable stuff. We should be moving toward it. So, everyone, the book is abundant energy, the fuel of human flourishing. Um, Ken just mentioned the issue of healthcare, which we're not going to get a chance to talk about. So, definitely read it for that. That's worth the price of admission. I found that fascinating. How much energy goes into healthcare and all kinds of other things that you wouldn't associate energy with uh, directly. Ken, thanks for coming on. Anywhere um, besides reading this book, you would like our uh, listeners, viewers to go to learn more? Well, sure. I mean, I blog on AEI's uh, house blog, aeideas.org. Um, you can find my work on the AEI website, www.aei.org. Um, and um, I blog weekly at the Pacific Research Institute's Environmental Trends blog as well. Um, those would probably cover, that covers most of what I do, uh, but uh, I, I gather I can be YouTubed as well, and there are seminars and speeches to be found if, you, if your listeners are interested. I assiduously, avo assiduously avoid seeing them myself, but uh, they're out there. Yeah, most Kenneth, listeners Kenneth, know Kenneth how to use Green YouTube. Yeah, Kenneth P. Green will tend to get you your best search results. There aren't too many of us. There are several others who are, um, uh, strangely enough, either, either uh, politicians or uh, have PhDs like I do, but um, it's there. There aren't too many of us. There's one athlete as well, I think. Well, those Which, those who view this on YouTube will have seen your picture and not probably yeah, not confuse you. No, they'll figure out which one's which. All right, great. Well, thanks so much, Ken. Uh, great stuff. My pleasure. Anytime. Pa 
Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.